0: You're in the Waterloop. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. I'm a huge fan of High Sierra shower heads for many reasons, including how they are incredibly water efficient, they provide tremendous water pressure, and they're made from solid metal with no plastic parts. I also love supporting a small business that's based in the High Sierra foothills where their team designs and assembles all of the shower heads with parts from suppliers in California. This is a US company. I've spent time talking with owner David Malcolm. He's concerned about the pressures facing our water resources and wants to make a difference. That's why he's focused his company on water conservation and energy efficiency. High Sierra showerheads is exactly the type of product and company that's worth our support. Use promo code Waterloop for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Joined for this episode by Bill Miller. He is CEO of EJ Water Trust. Bill, I am glad that we finally caught up for a conversation after me being aware of what you're doing for, for many years. Um, looking forward to talking about this with you.
1: Yeah, Travis, thanks. And I appreciate you reaching out. And this is going to be a lot of fun and exciting. So I'm glad to be here. And hopefully, uh, we'll add some uh, uh, value and depth to your listeners.
0: Absolutely. So, I'm curious about uh, the problem that you all set to solve with EJ Water Trust. What What was the issue or the issues out there that led to your organization?
1: So the and I will have to go back a little bit further than the trust. Um, there's uh, an entity called the EJ Water Cooperative. And um, and it's a not-for-profit just like the the, the EJ water trust is um, but there's distinct differences. Uh, the trust of course is organized just like an agricultural co-op or electric co-op a lot of folks in rural America are familiar with those models but the basically you know the, the members own uh, and you know and vote in the board of the co-op and then over years you know once you're you know once the debt's paid off there's capital credits so it's this idea of sharing the profit and you get, Uh, remunerated um, capital credits, um, you know, once debts are paid off. And then you have the trust model, which is basically, um, I I would almost call like the Red Cross. So every, you know, the Red Cross is a national organization. And of course, then you have, you know, state chapters, if you will, that kind of break it down. So uh, how the trust happens, we, the co-op's been here for about 31 years.
0: Okay.
1: And so we've successfully, um, grown from a very small, you know, originally this was only, this was started because there wasn't a uh, good potable water during drought times. Um, we just don't have good groundwater.
0: And you're and in, so, and for folks that don't know, you're in Illinois.
1: Yeah, we're in South Central Illinois, about halfway between uh, St. Louis and Indianapolis along Interstate 70. So most people are familiar with Interstate 70. It starts around Baltimore and heads out to Denver. And so it's one of the main arteries, you know, East West arteries, um, in, in our nation. And so, um, uh, you know, because like with most problems, a lot of people talk. And our founder, uh, Delbert Munn, is always famous to say, and he passed away earlier this year. Um, but he, he had made a comment that a lot of people just talk, but very few people do anything about it. And one of the things that Delbert is just so famously known for is he's a doer. And, and so he got a bunch of people together. And they decided we got to do something about this. And so back in basically 1988-89, they started the EJ Water Cooperative. And ironically, he was uh, the president of Norris Electric Co-op, which was our local rural electric co-op provider. So he already understood, you know, what a utility co-op is. And really, we, we you know, we employed the case method, which is copy and steal everything. <laughs> um, and so we, we basically, you know, copied everything that Norris Electric was, because uh, why reinvent it? And so that is where the model started initially. And so we've been kind of chugging along here and we're we're uh, between our contract business and the utility side. Uh, we basically have two different sides of the co-op. You know, we're, we are responsible, if you will, for about 70,000 people, rough math. Uh, I don't know, something like 30, 35,000 accounts. Um, and, and it varies. I mean, it's it's either we provide retail water, we wholesale water to the community, or we literally manage and operate um, or do back office uh, type work uh, for, uh, for about, uh, I think, something around 25 utilities. And they're all pretty small, although we do have one large city that we uh, contract uh, superintendent. But so the trust. So how this happens is we've had different people look at us and say, hey, that's kind of working. How does it work? Why won't it? You know, and I've had people ironically even from the EPA um, and others kind of say, how do you nationalize this model? You know, what does that look like to nationalize the model? And so ironically, a gentleman from University of Pennsylvania, grad student, um, I get a referral and he calls up and he says, hey, we, I, you know, he wants to ask me questions. And so he starts asking me questions, this has been a couple years ago. And he, I think uh, he was getting his master's in uh, not for profit leadership. I believe that was the actual curriculum. And so he starts doing research. And uh, of course, as we talk and as we're talking, you know, you're you're thinking and asking questions. And of course, you know, I, I thought I was talking to someone in their 20s, you know, grad student. Little did I know, it was a <laughs> older gentleman like me, right? Um, and and so uh, he. He had he had a little bit of grant money, so he flew out here, uh, which impressed me because I was like, dang, you you know, (laughs) because he wanted to see it. Yeah. And uh, so he came out and and I was very impressed with uh, him and his work. And and one of the Achilles heels that he felt through his research was that, you know, one of the one of the uh, both. It's a it's a strength and a weakness, if you will, is that the co-op members vote the board. But if you think about a co-op in multiple states. How do you have a board for multiple states?
0: Mm.
1: Now, you'll see that in agriculture a little bit. But in agriculture, you're talking about, say, five, eight, ten thousand farms as opposed to, say, a million. I'm making the number up, you mm-hmm. know, a million. Right. And the idea is, how, how would you have a board in a governance model like that? And so he kind of came back to a trust. And one of the big things that the trust idea was, was that it's a it's a charitable, you know, foundation, so it could take charitable um, receipts uh, from, you know, say wealthy families or uh, philanthropy, that type of thing. And see, as a co-op, we're not allowed to take that money. Now, we we uh, we rely on, you know, grants for uh, capital improvements, both from, you know, uh, USDA and and the EPA and and through the CDBG, which is a HUD program. Those go so into for- the
0: those go into the co-op.
1: They they can go into the co-op, uh, so we're eligible for all those programs, uh, but we're not eligible to take any kind of philanthropy, and so that does provide something a lot different than what we can do. And so the idea of the trust was this uh, manner of taking and you know, for lack of a better word, copying and pasting, if you will, the 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 intellectual property and the lessons learned and best practices of what we're doing every day in trying to replicate that. Um, out on a national scope. And so that has really been, you know, the, the bones of how the trust happened, what our thought was and, and you know, it, the play on words, you know, EJ, it, you know, doesn't mean a lot to folks really anymore, but originally the word EJ stood for Effingham and Jasper County, which was the two counties we started. But it's also play on words because, you know, today a lot of folks are interested in environmental justice. So we've been kind of playing around with this EJ concept in environmental justice, but then also paying honor to the very organization that kind of helped birth it, if you will, by, you know, the thought. And so that's kind of this play on words of EJ being both the co-op, you know, locally, but yet nationally on on the trust. Sure. So I hope that kind of
0: clears that up. Absolutely. Uh, On the co-op. So when this, when it was formed about 30 years ago, a little more than 30 years ago, why, what was, what was the need? What was the driver with water? uh, in these communities that said, hey, we need to take this different approach?
1: Yeah, so for your listeners, um, there was basically, and this is going back into your, uh, you know, back to school. We're going to go back to
0: school. Let's do it. Let's go back to school.
1: (laughs) So the first glacier kind of ran through (laughs) the U.S., right? The second glacier stops, like, so in Illinois, it stops about halfway through. And for local folks, they call that the black dirt line and so why is that important well the black dirt line was glacial till and and not only is it better for farming up north but it also generates uh the glacial till is also the the uh, geology and i'm not a geologist but it also generates the ability for groundwater to be readily accessible and so up north a lot of wells i mean i grew up uh in northern illinois just off the wisconsin border and we did not live in town uh we lived in a subdivision, and, a, and my mom and dad, we had a, a real deep well. So I was very familiar with what wells were, but when I, when I met my wife and we moved down to, you know, central Illinois, um, and I south of the black dirt line now, right, um, there's not good groundwater. And so a lot of cisterns, a lot of shallow wells. So everything's fine in the winter. Everything's fine if it's raining a lot, but the wheels come off when it's dry and you've got drought. And so one of the things that really uh, resonated to me when I'm dating my wife, literally they, uh, my, well, to be future, uh, future father-in-law, he says, go get water, <laughs> you know, for the house. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> you know, this is like 20th century, man. Is this, a, is this
0: a trick here? Is this a yeah, test? This a trick yeah, <laughs>
1: exactly. So I, I was blown away, you know, and I'm just, you know, I'm in college back in the, you know, way, this is way before the, the water career. And so I really was blown away, you know, 20th century and, and, and they're, they're going to get drinking water, you know, to run the shower and, you know, all that kind of thing. So that was my first experience that, you know, this, and I didn't know anything about the glacial till. didn't know anything about, (laughs) you know, going back to school at this point, but uh, those were kind of my bones. And then the bones of the area really were, again, people were literally having to drive to get drinking water. So locally, in our little town of Dietrich, which is a real small town, uh, they couldn't flush the toilet at the school. And so our founder, Delbert, who I mentioned earlier in our talk, he was also, you know, because in small town, you wear lots of hats, right? Yeah. Delbert was famous for that. So he was the uh, on the school board of the local school, and he had a very big heart for, you know, basically uh, K through 12. And he, again, had, something has to get done. Because if the school doesn't have water, that's a problem. And so that is really the why of what created the co-op was just didn't have adequate, you know, both quantity and quality of water. And that's the cause of why.
0: Gotcha. Um, So as I'm, I'm not as familiar with the whole co-op setup and how that works. So could you go over again (laughs) for me and others, just then how that functions, how that, Improves water service how it provides water to people. What what what's yeah, that structure?
1: so so the co-op um, I've told folks there's you know in our industry roughly 85 percent of the uh, Water systems are municipally owned about 15 percent are investor owned and then we're this very small sliver um, and 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 it's funny because USDA's told me there's some 3,000 co-ops and they're all pretty small or they you know, water associations, that type of thing. But um, there's there's just a handful of larger ones that kind of get to scale. Mm. And, uh, and of course, we're one of them. So the, the main difference, if you will, is if you're municipally owned, well, typically your local district or um, municipal entity owns the utility. Although the ownership's there, but the, 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 the actual municipality doesn't pay the bills. It's the ratepayers that pay the bills. So it's this... It's kind of this strange hmm. and I don't call it strange but it's it's a one-off in other words the ratepayers pay the city and the city pays for the utility even though the city really owns it hmm. and and the input that the citizenry have is through the elected the, the elected you know the Commission or elected officials whether it's a board of trustees or city council or you know whatever the makeup of the city is and in districts are the same way Um they're they're uh, basically they're, the board represents those uh, those citizenry. So, but the ratepayers don't own the utility in the municipal model, right? So then you switch over to the investor model, which basically is there's a shareholder just like a corporation, and they own the assets. And of course, you know, just like in the municipal you know situation the the citizens if you will of that utility pay the rate payer you know as ratepayers, they pay into the utility and then again uh, it's a diff- just a different model now get to the co-op so the co-op the 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 actual users are members they're owners of the actual co-op and so it's this like you know envision envision um, you know you share a uh, uh, say a lawnmower with four of your neighbors so it's like you, you literally, um, each each one pays 25%, you know, the cost of this mower. So let's pretend the mower is, you know, $400. So everyone ships in a hundred bucks and they all share the mower, right? And, and so that's kind of this co-op idea is everyone kind of pitched money in. You, you own it together. You share in the maintenance cost. And basically no one really has to own it. It's almost like this rent concept, you know, rent to own, if you will. Um, so at any rate, uh, and then how the board is Um, elected the actual member owners you know they vote for the board and the board is always made up of members and so you know it's a very direct Mm. link because again you know the member customers own us so there is no owner right and one of the cool things that I feel that the co-op offers I call it a hybrid and the hybrid is this we're mission driven just like the municipality because we're a non-for-profit yet we function more like a business because we're, we have um, detached, not detached, we have untethered is a better word. We've untethered ourselves from the political cycle because one of, the, one of the frustrating parts that a lot of my municipal colleagues have is that every time the mayor changes, every time the city council changes, it's a different philosophy oftentimes. And, and, and sometimes even for bigger you know establishments, you know, you'll see the the executive director or whatever they're going, you know, the public works guy. You know, he's gone because a whole new administration's in, and so you've got this up and down of the utility, and it, and it's really tough to make very long haul decisions when you've got a very short, you know, horizon, you know, which is typically a political horizon that's being established. So it's really difficult, um, and then also too, you got to remember. The uh, the mayor or the elected officials, you know, they're trying to run a town, mm. right? They got police and fire and streets and all these, you know, complicated things. And then the utility is kind of this little thing over here to the side. Because one thing that's interesting about water, wastewater, it's all underground, right? You drive by, you see that water tower in the air, but you really have really had no idea what the hell that thing really is, right? Other than, you know, the, the city names on it. Right. And, and there's really not this attachment for the local folks to really understand what the utility is. Because again, you go, you know, you you turn on the shower, you brush your teeth. Somehow that water magically comes from wherever it comes from. It jumps in the pipe, blows out the faucet. And then of course on the wastewater side, it's even funnier. Somehow it just goes on that drain and we have no idea where it goes, right?
0: gone. Yeah.
1: Puff puff the magic dragon, right? (laughs) So that is always the funny part, but it's also the sad part because folks really don't understand the convenience that a lot of developing countries, even to this day, don't have that level of uh, infrastructure, and um, it, it's just a fascinating thing that happens. Yeah. So I hope so, that so I hope that for listeners they, they kind of understand that.
0: It helped me tremendously. So uh, again, how many people are part of of the uh, the EJ Water Cooperative? How many customers? How much water are we talking about?
1: So. Uh, well, in our case on the water side, so I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the utility side of our business, not the contract service side of the okay. business. So on the utility side, we have about 13,000 retail members. So these are direct retail customers, um, or connections and their members. And then we have a, another class, which is our wholesale class. Hmm. And we wholesale to about 10,000 more customers. So in other words, it's like a member's member, you know, we'll sell, we'll sell water to a town who might have anywhere from, you know, say 500 to thousand, 1500, you know, customers. And so when you aggregate all those, it's roughly about 10,000 is the number pretty close. And then we also wholesale water to other co-ops and other districts. So it's not just municipalities. And uh, you know, and again, as I mentioned earlier in our talk, because this is uh, an area that doesn't have a lot of groundwater, uh, the surface water game is a much different game because it's, it has to be done at scale because of cost and economics. And so, generally, it's like a you know, think about it for your listeners like, say, an airport. You know, you don't build an airport in every single town, right? Uh, you know, you all regionalize that. And, and so, the same thing when it comes to trade, you're, you're trying to regionalize, you know, services such as, in this case, water treatment. Um, so, that's kind of how that's. That's being done.
0: There's a couple of things that you all talk about on, on your website that I'm curious to just want to dig into a little bit. And, you know, that's the idea that you, through this model, there's, there's better service and lower rates. Could you, could you explain that?
1: Yeah. So the, so the service and the rate issue, we typically can operate at about 30% less cost than say our investor owned cousins. And, and, the, and it's very easy why we, we don't pay income tax, we don't pay sales tax, and we don't pay real estate taxes. So as a tax exempt entity, we're not paying those taxes, which is identical to the municipalities. The municipalities are not paying those taxes either. So we're treated from a tax perspective just like a municipality. So if you will, that's an unfair advantage that we have from our you know, investor-owned you know, friends. But then the service side of this comes over here. Um, because we're a larger entity and we are doing things at scale, our service tends to be much more innovative. And so as an example, we, we were one of the first, uh, utilities in Illinois to provide text notification of boil orders and texting people, uh, what their water bill is. So, you know, everyone gets a text saying how much you owe. It'll also give you a text. Oh, your payment went through and your balance is zero. And so, that simple notification is very familiar with folks that, you know, do business with Verizon or Dish Network or, you know, some of your more at scale you know, utilities. But when you get over into a very bifurcated, you know, water space, it's extremely difficult for anyone at the city council to go in and say, hey, by the way, um, I would like to spend, you know, say $10,000 on an IVR system. And the mayor and the city council are going to say, "What do you need that for?" Right?
0: (laughs) Not necessary, Uh, right? That's just a yeah, not necessary, right?
1: Yeah, Yeah, because I got to buy taser guns for the police department, or you know, there's such higher priorities that you know a lot of city councils are dealing with, and so you never get to a point where you can really innovate. And it's not the fault of necessarily the desire of the folks that work there. It's just that they don't have that kind of support to say, "Hey, uh, we would like to provide chat." Uh, within the website for the call center well you know now this happens every day say at American water right might happen every day at Verizon or uh, you know some of the big telcos or say your electric you know company but when it comes to a water no one's making those kinds of investments uh, in technology and so that's why we tend to provide better service because we just have more tools available to us um, sure and, and when we say better service it's more in terms of like, in you know, our marketplace is smaller towns. So when you look at, you know, mm-hmm. we have our own lab, right? Nobody in here in our area, except you get to the bigger towns, really has a lab. Uh, we have obviously a safety director. Well, again, because of the smaller utilities, nobody really has a safety director, you know, and the list just goes on and on and on and on and on. Um, And so that's kind of why we're able to provide better service, because, again, we're doing it at a larger scale.
0: Makes a ton of sense. Uh, Another thing you talk about is the quality of your water, you know, exceeding safety standards. Could you expand on that?
1: Yeah, we've we've been really we've got a couple of folks on the team that are just crazy about water, which is why, you know, that's what you want. Right. So I'm proud to say our flagship uh, plant, which is called the Delbert Munt Plant, which is named after our founder. Uh, it's won the best tasting water in Illinois, you know, two of the last 10 years. And, uh, and believe it or not, a lot of listeners may not know there's, there's literally a water tasting contest, just like you have a wine tasting contest or a beer tasting contest or a bourbon tasting contest. So there are water tasting contests.
0: Not all water tastes the same, right?
1: Not all water tastes the same. So, uh, we won, uh, in two different organizations. One was rural water, which is, uh, you know, a trade association that mainly represents smaller uh, water systems throughout the U.S. and then also through the American Waterworks Association uh, through the state chapter. Uh, so we've won in both uh, associations, and it, it was a great honor to have that. Um, and it, it it also, you know, aside from the award, it it lets a lot of our member, you know, uh, customers really understand that we take this thing serious. I mean, we spend quite a bit of money, well beyond compliance costs that we want to make sure our water is the best it can be. And so that's kind of our main drive because oftentimes at least this is a, so this gets into the value proposition of water. Mm. To me, it doesn't sometimes take a lot of extra to make the water even better. Mm. So our idea has always been, if we can, if we can make the water quality, you know, several layers more than what is necessary, you know, you're never going to have a problem with people understanding that, hey, this, this water tastes great. But now there are some people that would be more cost contentious to say, well, you're over-treating the water. Mm. So therefore, you're spending too much money. But those are folks that really want to live, uh, live it right on the edge. And we've decided we're not going to, you know, and this is also the board of directors, they don't want to live life on the edge. They also want to provide that value proposition so that when we're talking to a new community, you know, the reputation of our water tends to be fairly positive. Now, we, we don't badmouth our other neighbors, you know, their water, you know, hmm. at least not in public. <laughs> <laughs> Internally, everything goes right. right. But, uh, but um, we really want to make a difference. And, uh, and, and again, it gets back to the value of proposition. You know, water typically is one of your most least expensive utilities that you have at the home. And so my our adage typically is why aren't we giving people the best value we can? Because again, they'll support rate increases, they'll support the fact that your guys are doing a great job providing a great service. Um and that's generally our attitude. We want we want our service to be so incredible it's a no-brainer when you write the check.
0: Yeah. You you mentioned the play on EJ and, you know, the the founder, if you will,'s name, but also the location, but also environmental justice and, and equity. Um, and I'm just wondering thoughts on that, given, you know, you're out in a, in a rural area, there's lower income areas, we know what's happened in rural America with a lot of the ch- economic challenges and, and so forth. So uh, where does, where does kind of that idea of equity and, and fairness fit into your, the approach of the, of the co-op?
1: Well, one of, the, one of the neat things about the, the co-op model is that and this works just like the large investor owns also. you know one of the things I'm very proud of the investor owns is that this single tariff concept that they're running after. I think it's a great concept and And when I first heard about this years ago, I was fascinated by it. and, and so real quick for your listeners, yeah. what, is, what does that mean, right? Well I think everyone understands that if you're in a smaller market, costs are typically higher because you don't have enough users to spread, you know, spread the cost over. So this is kind of like, you know, your fourth grade math, you know, your numerator and your denominator, you got costs divided by how many users. And, and so typically in smaller towns, it just costs more because you don't have scale. Right. And so in our case we're, we're, we serve about 14 counties and, and because of that, there are some very low-income low, low income areas that we serve. Uh, and then there's also some higher you know income areas that we serve. And, and especially like in our case, density. Uh, and when I say density, I don't mean IQ. I'm talking about <laughs> customers per mile. That really varies. And so we are, are fortunate enough to have a lot of smaller towns that we own the retail water. And of course, the density in a town is unbelievable compared to a rural area. Uh, and the reason that's important is that we basically leverage all that together to have, in essence, one rate. And so if you're in the smallest of small towns, you're going to pay the same rate as someone who lives in a bigger town. And, and so I, I saw this firsthand. Um, I was, uh, overseas at, um, uh, England water, which is uh, North of London. And, um, they have a very large system. I'm talking millions of customers, you know, and, and so I was fascinated because they have something like, I think it was like 300 water plants or 400 water plants, and then something like a thousand wastewater plants. It was just this number that it was so hard for me to understand, right? Because in the U S we, we don't, we don't really have anything like that. And, um, or, well, maybe American water does, but I'm saying, under, sure. you know, yeah. more of a, but England though, what I was fascinated by is that they, they were serving towns like 50 people. And and if you lived in that town versus a town of say 300,000 people, you all paid the same rate, which in the case of like England water, I think was $23 was their average water rate, whether you're in the smallest of town or the biggest of town. And that's when it hit to me, this issue of equity. And because the, 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 issue that I feel or face is that in the smallest of towns, or even in, in your in your areas of low low and lowest moderate income, if you can do things at scale, you can do things in a way that it, it makes it extremely affordable. The problem is is that if you're not at scale, plus you're serving a low income area, you know it's kind of this have and have nots, and that's always the argument. But but the counterbalance to that is. A lot of your municipalities, because of even some state state uh, legislation, you know, there's not this idea. Hey, we've got all this, and we're not going to share it with you because we can't allocate that, right? Uh, so oftentimes, yeah, but but I always tell people, all those rules are all man-made. Hmm. I mean, they're not biblical, right. right? I mean, they didn't come down from some, you know. I mean, they are man-made rules and laws, and I I get the purpose of some of them, but I think when it gets into like equity and some of the challenges we're facing, I think we have to challenge ourselves and review and look at why did we have those rules and do those rules serve us going forward? Because I think this equity issue is a big challenge for us. And even the idea of, of, you know, not shutting people off, right? Or or how do we have a service that you you provide a limited service, which is mainly for health and safety, right? But then if you want to have the full service, then it's a different kind of number. Well, the issue you get into for a lot of our friends in the industry, it is extremely, I mean, I would almost go to say impossible to thread that needle because mm-hmm. it's so complicated. And then it gets so polarized and it, and it becomes almost impossible to agree on a strategy or methodology. And so I think one of the challenges is, and that's why I think the beauty of the co-op and even the trust has an opportunity to go beyond the political um you know, geofence, if you will, of, of one town. And then you've got the neighboring town that uh, doesn't have the income or doesn't have the sophistication or whatever all that is. But it's this idea of sharing those resources across, um, you know, for a lot of these towns are enemies, right?
0: Because <laughs> <you know, laughs> I'm going to yes. serve you and
1: yeah. blah, blah, blah. Or, or you beat me in football and I don't like you <laughs> for the rest of my life. and
0: yeah, know, But yeah.
1: It, that stuff really plays out. And so I think that's one of the beauties of the co-op. Because again, let me get back to like a, an airport, right? So, you know, especially downstate, you know, our nearest airport, and when I say airport, I mean international airport, is about 90 miles away. So you're traveling to go to an airport. And, 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 and I always make comments um, to folks in a regionalized way. You know, like say you're gonna go, you know, my, wa- my, my wife got, or my excuse me, my daughter got married last fall, and my wife is out looking for a dress, right? Well, you can't just go to our little small town and pick up the dress because my, my daughter's getting married down in Nashville or just south of Nashville, Tennessee. And, and so, you know, when you think about how you do certain kinds of things, um, it's difficult, whether it's medical services or, you know, some of your more specialized types of things. And my point is we trade in a very regionalized fashion. And I think there's an opportunity to, to lift our minds to say we can trade in a larger fashion when it comes to our water, wastewater. Mm. Yes, it's local. But if you can scale costs, it becomes more equitable, becomes more cost effective. And again, the stability and the resiliency of that utility, uh, will, well, like in the case of COVID. Right. When you're a utility of, say, two or three employees, mm. one person gets COVID, you've lost yeah. one third of your workforce. <laughs> one third right right I mean uh, we had two team members get COVID here um and and one of the things that I was telling our board was that I just don't want to get 10 or 15 um you know positives in one week I mean that I can't I can't it's difficult for me to manage but now again at my scale uh that hurts but you know the next scale up is say say you have 500 or 1,000 employees Mm. right so if you only had 10 or 15 people out at that level well that's just you know I'm not saying you don't care, but it doesn't impact operations. It. Right. You manage
0: it better, right? right.
1: So that's one of the Achilles' heels that we're learning about COVID. Is that when you're really, really small, holy smokes, that has a dramatic impact. You know, not to mention even the slowdown in water consumption hmm. um, because of the economics of COVID, and also you know the idea and on this recent call uh, for the water financing and infrastructure uh, conference recently. You know, the whole idea was. I don't believe Uncle Sam or even in the state, you know, these budgets are all going to get hammered because of a slowdown in the economy. Sure. And I think there's going to be higher priority issues that are going to have to be solved. I mean, we just spent $4 trillion on COVID, you know, at the federal level. And so it's my belief that it's going to be difficult to reconcile the needs of water, wastewater, because again, as we said earlier in the talk, all that stuff's underground. It doesn't complain. It just kind of works.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: And it's going to be difficult for you to find the funding. So that, again, it gets back to the point of regionalization and consolidation is that it's going to be extremely difficult for smaller utilities moving forward um, to, to be able to reconcile the economic realities of not having the check come from the federal government, right?
0: Yeah, well that's exactly I I the kind of the big last question I wanted to ask and it's a, it's a big one. Is this regionalization one? Uh the idea that we have what over 150,000 different drinking water utilities in the United States and as they deal with a lot of these financial challenges and staffing and infrastructure and so forth, um there's a lot of there's talk about we should regionalize these should group together more because they would share resources and share staff and all the things you've just outlined as being advantages of the co-op model, uh, would, would help. Uh, I think I see even see Seth Siegel's book over your shoulder there where he talks a (laughs) lot. Uh, uh, he talks, I, I saw just the top of it and I can recognize (laughs) it, um, where he talks a lot about this. Um, so, and there's a lot of, trepidation about going that way and, oh, and sure, it's is. so complicated how do you break the rules like you said and and just because things have been this way or are set up this way are we stuck this way no we're not um so yeah just kind of want to get your thoughts on yeah. <laughs> nationwide where we go with with having this many utilities and the problems that come with them versus the solutions that come with clustering together working yeah. out cooperatively
1: well, you know, it's a great question. Um, and, I, and I would challenge the listeners, um, because it's funny, I, I, I've i done these talks on regionalization over the years, and, and I'll have people sometimes come up to me and say, you know, you're crazy, and, and, you know, obviously be very negative about this idea. <laughs> but I, I don't have to look too far. Um, and I think the answer is looking at the electric utility industry. Uh, Looking at the uh, natural gas industry, say, as well as like even the the, the telecom industry. Um, And so I give these talk and and these are just rough numbers, but there's about 3,300 electric utilities in the entire United States, 3,300. About 2,000 of those utilities are your municipally owned electric, you know, utilities. And I think the largest electric municipal utility is my good friend, Marty Adams at, uh, um, you know, LA, uh, LA, you know, LA department of water and power, uh, Marty runs that shop over there, does a great job. Um, but I think that's one of the largest electric, you know, munis. Uh, but then you get over into water. And as you mentioned, you know, there's about 53,000, uh, you know, and, and these definitions get funny on the EPA because you can talk about non transient transient or under 15 users or over 15 users. Mm. Uh, but you know, from a classical, you know, uh community water supply, which is which is kind of this definition within this. It's a subset of a larger definition. Yeah, there's some fifty yeah, thousand.
0: utilities. I don't know why I rounded up. I added a hundred on the front of that. I said one hundred and fifty-three thousand. Maybe I'm uh, just think, I'm thinking there's a lot of them. You know.
1: Yeah, there is. <laughs> well, we call it preacher count around here. You know, everyone adds up. You know, how many people were there on Sunday? Well, it's right. bigger. You know, <laughs> but it's a ton. Yeah. And I think I think the listeners, if they thought about, if you were to start this business today. Would you do it this way? And I think the answer is absolutely not. Right. I think where we get into the weeds of difficulty is this idea of you know, control, because we hear this a lot. Uh, we've had two failed merger acquisitions, and and a, and a lot of it was based on fear. A lot of it was this idea, I'm going to lose something or uh, an employee is going to be displaced or, I mean, it, it's all fear driven, right? And, and if you think about, so I don't know if your listeners are big Brene Brown folks, you know, on vulnerability, but, but I, I'm a big believer in this idea of vulnerability. So let me kind of toss an idea up here. If you're not insecure and you're not fearful of the future, you tend to be much more open. You know, your heart's open, your mind's open and you're open to the possibility, right? And that's kind of where I, it starts. You have to be open to the possibility because a lot of times, especially in, in a rural market, uh, but this is even true of say suburban markets. You know, I, I'm, I, I said earlier on the call, I, I grew up in Northern Illinois and so I'm very familiar with Chicago and there's some 135 suburbs in and around Chicago and it's a fascinating model. And so let me share this with the listeners because folks may not know this or, or even care. But on the wastewater side, there's this entity called Metropolitan Water Reclamation District, MWRD. And it's a fascinating organization. A good friend of mine, David C. Pierre used to be uh, the lead there. And um, I got to know David fairly well. And why I'm fascinated by the model is it's not only the city of Chicago, it's all 135 suburbs under this one massive district. And so I asked David once, I said, what's your average sewer bill? Now that's a funny thing because in the case of MWRD, they don't actually charge a sewer bill like monthly like you do water. It's buried into your ad valorem tax, you know, your your property tax. So people don't really know what they're paying because it's kind of buried in that levy. But he told me this has been a few years ago that the average house pays about $16 for wastewater, and I'm like, that's a pretty good deal. Yeah. Right? Because it's it's not only wastewater, but it's also stormwater. Because guess what? They're a CSO community, you know, combined sewer. So they're managing both groundwater and surface water. And it's not just MPDS permits. It's also MS4. So, I mean, it gets kind of complicated pretty quick. But I was fascinated by that. And I'll flip over into the water. The city of Chicago has the city water, you know, management. I can't exactly remember the exact name of it. But they own the water system in the city of Chicago, and then they wholesale water to all the suburbs, (laughs) not all of them, but but the majority of them. So you've got this really strange difference between the two. And, of course, gets into, you know, why would you do that? Mm. Well, you know, wastewater, there's a lot of regionalized systems in wastewater. Um, You know, I know Minneapolis runs a great system up there. Um, You know, I'm thinking down in St. Louis and MSD. So you've got a lot of examples of more regionalized solutions on the wastewater because I don't think people get attached to wastewater. Hmm. You know, a lot of times it's like, hey, you want to take care of that? You know, my good friend Andy Crickin ran Camden, New Jersey, outside of you know Philly, and he shared with me he took 53 smaller wastewater plants and then consolidated into one large plant. And the win-win was he rolled back an enormous amount of costs And he did it in such a way that he never had to have rate increases because as he was saving money, um, the savings paid for the CapEx and the rate payers never had to go there. So it's an incredible model. And I guess that's why I'm such a big fan of what Andy did at Camden is because those type of leaders exist in our industry. And they excite me because they see it, they implement it, and then they make it happen. And so that gets super powerful. So. You know, you know, where I see the vision of this, it's it's having the ability to share, hey, look, we got to get the numbers down. And if we go together, um, we can do it together. Mm -hmm. And again, I I alluded to earlier about, you know, federal funding and state funding. I mean, the funding is going to cause a lot of this. I think also what's going to cause it is, you know, emerging contaminants that are coming and more complicated compliance that's coming. I mean, one of the things that we're facing here in Illinois is this whole corrosion control study stuff. And it's an outgrowth of Flint, Michigan, which, you know, a horrible situation that happened in our industry. But, you know, I, I, I've been laughingly saying within, you know, my friends, we're going to have to have chemical engineers here someday because it's where the industry is kind of going. And so I see a lot of need for more, you know, highly specialized, uh, you know, people. Um, you know, we, we have a business analyst now on staff and all he's doing, you know, why would a utility have a business analyst? Right. Well, it's all big data. Yeah. You know. And so he's uncovering stories that we can't see. He's using tools that big corporations use. And, and again, it gets back to this idea of scale, because I think you have to be a certain size utility to even have the ability to hire somebody in, get that person excited enough with our space. But then actually make a difference because beneath all these numbers, there's a story that'll help us understand how to manage better. I mean, I think there's opportunities with you know artificial intelligence. You know, some people are afraid of it, um, but then others, you know, like myself, we're, we're kind of embracing this technological change that's happening. And I think the other big thing that's happening is customers' expectations are dramatically changing. Mm. Um, I, I call it the Amazon effect. Mm. So you're used to when the delivery comes you know, you get an email immediately saying, oh, you know, your, your, your thing shipped or your thing arrived. And, and you think about it in terms of like, when, when we roll a truck for a work order, well, are we, are we emailing or texting the customer to say, hey, our guy will be out there at 1030-ish, and then when he leaves, this is the report. And, and I think, you know, the reasons why that kind of stuff's important is that the customer expectation is demanding more uh, transparency, better communication, and a better handle on what the heck's going on and because and, people really are interested in where's our water come from and who are you people and you know and how does this all work sure. so i think i think those types of things are going to cause um you know workforce technology customer expectation compliance um, and, and obviously funding and economics there, it's like, you know, that, that movie, perfect storm, yeah, right?
0: With, exactly. It's going to drive yeah. everything towards regionalization to co-ops or whatever it might be. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, and I tell people all along, I think, you know, of course I'm promoting the co-op way, but you know, an investor own way, or say even a larger district, if you will, that's multiple, um, you know, multiple, uh, um, oh, municipal boundary, you know, type districts. So there are some very effective, large districts that work sure, um sure. And, but what i've seen how they work the best is when they're untethered from the city council they're not a department of the city they're actually on their own uh one, one good example is uh our, our good friends in el paso they have a utility board um that at, at archuleta of course he's retired and he started up the el paso utility board i think that's what it's called but it's fascinating because um you know the city the, the city can have one member on the board but then the other board members are populated by more, uh, you know, not political positions, but more skill set positions. Right. right. And, and, and it allows the utility to be less political and more delivering the, the, the basically the goods or services that people need and want every day.
0: Makes a lot of sense. Well, Bill, this was tremendously informative for me. I really appreciate it. Uh, I have a much better, I feel, understanding of your model uh, and, and its advantages now. So I, I appreciate your time and the information so much.
1: Yeah, we had a lot of fun, uh, Travis, and hopefully you'll ask me back. Uh, we can unpack a few other things. There's a lot of things in this industry to unpack. So
0: Yeah, sounds uh, good. We'll do I it. I
1: appreciate your time.
0: All right, thanks.
1: Thanks bye. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.
0: The Waterloop podcast is brought to you by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart and stylish way to save water, energy, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop.